You're listening to an encore presentation of Sunny in Seattle. Welcome to Sunny in Seattle with your host, Sunny Joy. And coming up on today's show, Sunny is joined by Dr. Jeffrey Rediger, a doctor and faculty member at Harvard Medical School. And the two of them will be chatting about his book, Cured, The Life-Changing Science of Spontaneous Healing. So tune in and get not only the inspiration found in stories of miraculous recoveries, but also the science behind them. And now we welcome your host for the day, Sunny Joy. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to Sunny in Seattle. I'm your host, Sunny Joy McMillan, and we're here every Friday from 9 to 10 a.m. on Alternative Talk 1150 a.m. KKNW, bringing you amazing guests and resources that will help you create a life filled with peace, joy, freedom, and purpose. It is radio that positively shines. And if you can't catch the show live, you can always access those show archives. Those are found at 1150kknw.com. You can also find the show on iTunes and Podcast One. And then uh, for quick housekeeping, my website is goldenoversoul.com. That is goldenoversoul.com. And I wanted to, Benny, before we bring on our guest today, I wanted to mention, because I know Stephanie Banks, who's a regular guest on the show, um, will uh, she's going to be returning, let me think. April 15th. But I wanted to make you all aware, I'm going to be participating in her Learn to Channel class. Um, You know, as long as I've known Stephanie um, and as many of her events that I have been a part of, whether organizing or being a guest, um, this is the first time that I've taken one of her classes and I'm really, really excited. So I just wanted to share with you all um, what's coming up with her so that if you too want to take that class, it may be a good time to connect with Stephanie kind of in a deeper way if you've heard her on the show before. Um, and so this class is going to be perfect for people who want to develop intuitive skills, self-trust, connect with inner wisdom, all that good stuff that while I, you know, I don't plan to become a professional channel as Stephanie is, but I certainly use the connection to my own soul and my inner wisdom um, in my day-to-day life and in my professional life. And so I think this is a skill that can benefit anyone and everyone, even if you don't plan to use this in the same way that Stephanie does, you know, in her professional life. Um, and so um, we'll be doing some fun things like learning to use a pendulum, guided meditations, mantras. And, um, you know, one of the things that I think is so uh, unique about Stephanie is that she really does somehow maintains a really high vibration, particularly when it comes to her work. And I think she's going to be sharing some of the ways that she does that. So I'm excited to learn that. So Anyway, logistics are um, the class is going to start on March 27th. Uh, it's going to be on Sundays every other week for six weeks. So it'll be March 27th and April 10th and so forth. Um, class time is going to be, I think that's a Sunday, and it's going to be from 8 to 9.30 p.m. Eastern. So for Pacific folks, that would be 5 to 6.30 p.m. Pacific. Um, find out more, register, all that good stuff um, by going to Stephanie's website, which is soulinsight.com. That is soulinsight.com. And it's just under the live events page. So, um, yeah, Benny, before we bring on our guests, anything new, exciting happening with Recovering you? a little bit from last night's festivities. Other than that, doing very well. Thank I you completely forgot it was St. Patrick's Day. How? I know, I know. <laughs> this is, it used to be my favorite, being How? that I'm Irish, you've got the red hair, all that. It just. Um, it's okay. We've yeah. had a busy year. 
Yeah, I think I've had enough green beer in my life. No, to... you can never have enough. Yeah. Anyway, okay. Well, we working I'm... on whiskey sours or something? Like, <laughs> oh, no, no, <laughs> something just... a little different. All right, you're welcome to share. You know, like. No, no, I didn't not think anymore. So. Okay. No, no, no. I think I have partied enough for three lifetimes at this point, and I am much okay. more, um, what's right. the word, um, introverted when it comes to my Come on. Day holidays no way. these days. Anyway. They'll shine through again, I'm sure. Well, I'm glad you had fun, Benny. <laughs> yes, we did. Okay. Thanks. Um, well, per usual, I have a guest that I'm super excited about. Every week when I get to read these books and talk to these people, it's just so much fun. Um, I don't know. When I go back to divinity school, I'm I'm... I don't know how I'm going to keep up with reading a book a week for the show. But anyway, as long as I'm still able to do it, this was one of those weeks where I was just just completely drawn into this material. Um, so my guest today is Jeffrey Rediger, MD and MDiv, which is the degree that I'll be seeking, which I think is a fun little serendipity. So Dr. Rediger is on the faculty at Harvard Medical School and is the medical director of McLean Southeast adult psychiatry and of community affairs at McLean Hospital. And that may be McLean. I apologize if I'm mispronouncing that. We'll have to ask Dr. Rediger when he comes on. Um, one of the country's top psychiatric institutes and a leader in groundbreaking neuroscience research. He's a licensed physician and board certified psychiatrist and also the chief of behavioral medicine at Good Samaritan Medical Center and has a Master of Divinity degree from Princeton Theological Seminary. Um, Dr. Rediger has received numerous awards related to patient care and has been nominated for the National Brave Well Leadership Award, which recognizes physicians making significant contributions to the field of integrative medicine. His work has been featured on radio and television, including The Oprah Winfrey Show and Dr. Oz. Um, his website to find out more about him and his work is drjeffreyrediger.com, and that's just dr. So drjeffreyrediger.com, and Rediger is spelled R-E-D-I-G-E-R. Um, and the book that we're going to be discussing today is Cured, um, just a fantastic book with so much, not only inspiration, but um, the science behind uh, what, what the hope that we can have um, in the face of, of what are supposedly incurable, terminal, end-stage illnesses, um, and the research that Dr. Rediger has done to study cases of spontaneous remission. Um, Dr. Rediger, welcome to Sunny in Seattle. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. Um, I, as I mentioned, this book, um, I, I had less time this week. Like, usually I allocate, like, a little bit per day. And I, only because we moved this week, I was, like, up late nights, like, reading this book going, oh, my gosh, <laughs> this is so good. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Um, so I'm, you know, where to begin here? Because I'm really, I'm curious about your background, because not only are you an MD, um, you've also been um, to seminary school and, and have a Master of Divinity degree. Um, maybe my first question is, where so many doctors in the traditional setting see cases of spontaneous remission as flukes and just kind of put them to the side, um, mm -hmm. Why is it that you, with your background, um, were drawn to study these cases as, you know, grounds for what may give others hope going forward? I could probably answer that at a few different levels. The deeper reason is I think I grew up struggling a lot with how do you reconcile very different worldviews that are incompatible. Mm -hmm. My uh, father... Uh, grew up in an Amish tradition. Um, his 
father was a blacksmith in the Amish tradition and dad grew up uh, in a very rural situation. My parents left the Amish area when I was two years old. They left outwardly, but not so much inwardly. So I grew up without ready access to things like TV and radio. And there was a lot of suspicion about the things I was learning in school. Science, for example, mm. teaches evolution. And that was thought to be a, the tool of the devil. And so there was a lot of fear around the things I was learning in public school during the day. And the worldview of school was very different than the worldview that I lived in at home where the Bible is thought to be sufficient for all knowledge, for example. And so I was very confused about all of that. And I was an inquisitive kid and I don't think that helped make me an easier kid to raise. So at a young age, I began trying to figure out how do you reconcile worldviews that seem incompatible? That's what also drove me into seminary years later, trying to, again, reconcile these worldviews. And it was in seminary going deep into theology and philosophy of science that I began to conclude that Newtonian and Cartesian science actually play a very important function in our world and, and that there's a place for that. And, and so that then um, convinced me that science is a, a very valuable force in the world. I went home to Indiana uh, to the rural world I, was, I grew up in and my best friend's mom from high school uh, asked me after church one day, she said, well, what are you going to do with all the education? And I said, well, I'm going to be a college professor. And she said, you're going to get all that education and not do something to help people. So, <laughs> so, so again, there's that, that difficulty reconciling mm -hmm. the rural uh, world I grew up in with a more um, educated world. When I finally said, uh, subsequent to that a year later or something uh, that why don't I just go to medical school then everybody in that world that I came from understood that a lot more easily than going to become a college professor they could understand becoming a physician and I also could understand that better it gave me a path where I could do something practical in the world uh, very much uh, that I could understand and other people could understand but then privately, it still left me with an opportunity to continue uh, my interest in ideas and that sort of thing. So that reconciled my inner and outer worlds as well. Mm -hmm. So seminary was a great way to lay a foundation for me that offset the powerful socialization process of medical school, I believe. Mm -hmm. a another reason how I ended up doing this research um, was that this oncology nurse at Mass General in Boston came to me in 2002 and said that she had just been diagnosed with pancreatic cancer. She wanted some help explaining this to her son. It's a devastating diagnosis that she'd received, and usually pancreatic adenocarcinoma has a very short period of time after diagnosis before the person dies, and it's a, it's a brutal, painful ending, typically. So... I did, I did, did my best to help explain this to her son, but then she took off for a healing center and began writing and calling me saying that she was seeing some amazing recoveries and she said she was getting better herself and wanted me to look into it. And I said, no, <laughs> so <laughs> I, I thought it was unlikely that anything was going on uh, that was significant 
but I owe a lot to Nikki. She began having people call me and write me from around the country and elsewhere saying they had medical evidence for their recoveries. Did I want to hear their stories? I continued to say no. But the long and short of it is they would send me their files sometimes and I would look through them. Most of them I could explain from the standpoint of traditional medicine. I could say, well, this person is probably just a really good chemotherapy responder, for example. But some of the stories I couldn't explain from the standpoint of Western medicine. And the long and short of it is in 2003, I did begin to look into it. And it's been a life-changing journey, both personally and professionally since then. Yes. So one of the things that I just want to point out that you cover in the book is that that the, the cases that you did end up studying were ones, like you said, that there was a very you narrowed the field down significantly. So these folks right. had a very clear diagnosis that could be verified by any number of doctors just looking at what the biopsy said or whatnot. Right. And then these were folks who, at the end of it, there was no tumor left or no evidence of disease left in the body. So the, the ones right. that you chose for purposes of this book and your research are very clear-cut Right. Nothing short of miraculous, spontaneous remissions. Yes, that's true. And this is an area that initially was very confusing to me. Mm -hmm. The research is complicated. Mm -hmm. When you begin to look into this, it, it begins to become confusing. And it certainly did for me for the first several years. Usually when you look into these stories, the stories begin to disappear when you begin to ask for medical evidence, mm. or it turns out that they're not quite what the person was thinking they were. Mm -hmm. You know, every illness has its own trajectory, its own path of treatment, its, only like, its own likelihood of cure or lack of likelihood of cure. Mm -hmm. Every form of cancer, for example, some cancers are easily treated, some are not. Some you die with them, but not from them. Others are um, wax and wane throughout the natural lifetime. Um, and so you have to look at each illness in itself with a very deep understanding of what is the normal trajectory for this particular illness. So I had, I was skeptical. So I had three very strict criteria. Number one, the person had to have a genuinely incurable illness, according to all that we currently understand. Number two, medically indisputable evidence for accurate diagnosis mm -hmm. and clear evidence for recovery. Mm -hmm. And then number three, there couldn't be another good explanation for how they got better. They couldn't have taken an experimental medication or something like that that could potentially explain their recovery. So those three criteria are what I adhered to for the research. And that's what I discuss in Cured, but I should say that this book is not really for those that want to recover from an incurable illness. This is for the 85% or 90% of the illnesses out there that are lifestyle illnesses and that we treat as incurable every day. Like the major killers like heart disease, mm -hmm. diabetes, lung disease, cancer, autoimmune illness. For the most part, these have massive components in lifestyle. And even though I was taught in medical school that the basis of illness and recovery is around a genetic basis. It turns out that genes are turned on and off by our lifestyle choices, by 
our nutritional choices, by the relationship that we develop with stress, by our deep beliefs about our value and and how we feel about the universe we live in. These these factors play a big role in in um, what genes get turned on and turned off in our life and and what's possible. And so the worldview change that I've experienced over the years, over the last 19 years or so, is that, wow, these are the super achievers when it comes to health and well-being. But if we did just a fraction of these, instead of just simply starting a medication and helping a person tread water with their illness, if we actually did just a fraction of what these people have done, we would see a massive reduction in suffering and a huge improvement in well-being. And it's, it's just a really different way of thinking that's important. Yes. And one of the, I guess, the metaphor that you use throughout the book, or one of them, is the um, um, guardrails versus ambulances. Do you mind explaining <laughs> what you mean by that? Yeah, I, I think Western medicine is brilliant in many ways. And it's, it's, it's also a system that's partially broken. What's brilliant is that when a person falls off a cliff, we Western medicine is like a long line of ambulances at the bottom of the cliff that whisk the person off to the emergency room, to the hospital or the clinic, and is really good at pulling a person back from the brink of death, fixing a broken bone, pulling a person out of diabetic ketoacidosis or reducing the uh, acute issues with a stroke or gastroenteritis or back pain, all kinds of acute issues Western medicine is brilliant with. What it's not so good with is putting a guardrail at the top of the cliff so people don't fall off in the first place. Mm -hmm. Now, the people that I studied did fall off the cliff. They were able to construct a ladder that took them back Mm -hmm. up to the top of the cliff. It's certainly true that an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. These people worked really hard to recover their health and well-being. And, you know, we study ultimate achievement in sports and ultimate achievement in business, but we should be studying ultimate achievement in health and well-being as well, because these people achieved a lot. I don't think that all of us are going to do all that they did to get their life back again. But again, if we did a fraction of that, we would see so many fewer people fall off the cliff in the first place. And we would see so many people have a, a vast improvement in their health and well-being by climbing at least partway back up that cliff again. Yes. Um, and, and just so uh, listeners out there know, some of the cases that Dr. Rediger and the individual case studies included in the book include um, uh, such spontaneous remissions from in-stage lupus um, pancreatic cancer. Um, the, there was a brain cancer with like a two to 5% survival rate, right? I won't pronounce right. it correctly. Glioblastoma <laughs> multiform. Yes. <laughs> yes. And, um, uh, diabetes. Um, yep. yeah, mm-hmm. very advanced diabetes. Um, and some, so these are things that I think in, in mainstream culture, they are called incurable. And Mm -hmm. most folks think that they are, it's just a management of symptoms. So I just want to, I guess, share with with the listeners out there that, um, oh, and there was also another one, and I have a friend who was just diagnosed with this one. Um, It has to do with the fusing of the pelvic bone and the, uh, another one I won't pronounce right. Ankylosing spondylitis. Yes, yes. So Mm -hmm. these are cases that are, I think in many respects, considered lost causes, and yet you have the 
the inspiration and and also the the I guess the research behind how these folks did it. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and and so in in the almost twenty years that you've been doing this research, um, in looking at all of these cases, I just I'll just say at the outset we're going to unpack this throughout the course of our time together, but. The four threads or the four pillars of health that you've really identified that run as a through line for all of these folks is healing the diet, healing Mm -hmm. the immune system, healing our stress responses, and this one was the really interesting one to me, healing our identities. Yes. Um, Do you want, how do we want to do this? Do you want to kind of give a little brief explanation on each of those or should we do them in more detail? Yeah, we can do this however you want. Uh, mm-hmm. We can go through them in the order that you just raised them if you want. That's the order I discussed them and mm-hmm. cured. Yeah. Uh, and you're, you're right. The fourth pillar, the healing of identity, the healing of false beliefs is the biggest and most important one. It's also the most difficult one to study, yeah. but it is really important. Um, but yeah, we can start with nutrition if you want. That's a big one. Yeah, and yeah. Yeah, I, I can't tell you how much uh, the nutrition information that I received in medical school was upside down and completely wrong. It's <laughs> tragic that that's the yeah. case. It's unfortunate that doctors and even nutritionists often are given misinformation about the nature of nutrition and what genuine nutri- nutrition is. And it's complicated because the trifecta of industry and how that interacts with the academics who are paid to get certain results with the scientific studies and then how those two uh, interact with the lobbyists and government regulations that are created. It's science and it's important and it's also got an element of spin science. And so it's complicated and uh, there's some other agendas that offset the um, issues that are um, perceived and researched. So What's unfortunate is that in medical school, I was taught, for example, that that malnutrition doesn't really exist in Western countries. The problem is overnutrition. The problem is that people eat too much. That causes obesity. And uh, that's the problem. Well, it turns out the people I studied who really figured out a path around nutrition uh, to such a degree that they were able to heal their bodies they help me understand that it actually is a problem of malnutrition. The problem is that so many of the foods that we eat in the standard American diet are processed foods that don't have the densely packed nutrients that our body craves. And so the body keeps triggering the hunger mechanism, looking for these phytonutrients, looking for the vitamins and the minerals that the body needs to be at its best. And since it's not getting those, it's often hungry and looking for more. And that's what causes the person to eat more. And unfortunately, there's a lot of empty calories. So there's not one diet that fixes all this. Mm -hmm. Every person has a different microbiome. They come from a different ancestry, a different part of the world. They have different enzymes that uh, are more active in the ancestry they grew up in that are able to metabolize certain foods better. But there are certain things to be aware of, certain common factors underneath all these different different diets that people have. By and large, the people I studied mostly gave up processed foods the with all the empty calories that means the high sugar content foods mm-hmm. the refined flours 
that are basically like sugar. Mm -hmm. um, they gave up a lot of the um, 88% of the people I studied gave up most animal products. They didn't give them up completely always, but they mostly reduced the amount of animal products. Or if they didn't reduce animal products completely, they they dramatically improved the quality of the animal products that they consumed uh, by eliminating the uh, chemicals that were in that's in so much of the meat that we buy the antibiotics that are given to cause weight gain mm -hmm. you know if you're putting chemicals and antibiotics and steroids into your body because they're in those chemicals are in the meat and animal products you're consuming it's going to have the same effect on you right uh, the same uh impact on your own weight gain and and that sort of thing if you eat chicken for example when the chickens are having their beaks cut off in order to stop pecking themselves to death because they're in such confined, stressful quarters. Uh, those stress hormones that are coursing through their bodies and you put those same stress hormones into your own body, that's not going to be good for your own um, biological system. And so um, I, I tell people that if, if they are going to eat animal products, uh, it's usually best to dramatically cut down on those, but to at least make sure that you're getting the pasture fed um, meats that have more omega threes instead of the unhealthy omega sixes, for example. Right. So there's a lot with nutrition. Uh, again, it's not one size fits all, but understanding what really works for your body and gives you nutrient dense foods so that you're not living with a level of malnutrition. Yes. And that was another thing that I think we're not, not just as it related to diet, but there was mm -hmm. another theme that I noticed throughout the book that, that most of the people who were the spontaneous recoverers that you looked at, um, mm -hmm. they really worked to find what was right for their body, their lifestyle. Yes. And it was a, it was a little bit of a, like a, a trial and error um, yes. what, regarding all kinds of things, like what modalities to use, whether Reiki or acupuncture or rolfing or yoga mm -hmm. or, and then of course with the foods and some people had hard and fast rules that they never had another meat product again. And others were like, no, I have a steak occasionally. I'll have ice cream occasionally or something like that. <laughs> exactly. Yes. It's really tailored to each person's, uh, situation. A number of people I spoke with, made a shift away from the foods they were giving up and began focusing on the nutrition they're giving themselves mm. instead of what they're giving up, which yeah. changed the psychological piece of this. And, yeah. and, you know, food is love and food is community. And at the end of the day, all of us need more love and community in our lives. And so how to make creative decisions in the context of their life um, is very much a, a unique situation. Some people would make huge nutritional changes all at once yeah and just rid the pantry of all kinds of foods and experience rapid changes in their health. Mm -hmm. Others did their change more gradually. I've made more gradual changes. Mm -hmm. I was a very slow learner, <laughs> having received a lot of misinformation in my training, uh, but I've made huge changes over the period of many years. And fortunately, I didn't wasn't in a situation where I felt like I needed to make the changes really quickly, but as I learned, I slowly had a big worldview change around nutrition and did make the changes. And that was easier, but also the downside of that is you experience the 
benefits less dramatically. So you don't have the massive reward of realizing, oh, wow, I feel so much better immediately. Um, So, yeah. Yeah. Well, and then, then I guess that takes us right into the, the second of the pillars, um, healing the immune system. Um, and I was just so fascinated. Um, the explanations you gave, while medically accurate, were very approachable for a lay person like me. Um, right. Yeah. And to know that our immune system is designed to identify and eliminate cancer without outside yes. intervention. So can you speak to the importance of the, this is like the, the guardrail part, have the healthy immune system, then you don't fall right. off the cliff. That's right. Yeah. The immune system is a huge deal. So, and unfortunately there's a lot of things that we do that suppress the immune system instead of firing it up. Right. And the immune system wants to keep us healthy. It wants to keep us well. This is particularly important in a time of COVID, for example, but it's not just about COVID because the immune system is what keeps all kinds of things in our life healthy, not just infections. It's most of the illnesses from which people suffer and all the major killers, heart disease, diabetes, lung disease, autoimmune illness, most cancers. These are autoimmune illnesses where the immune system has gone off the rails and is attacking your own body. And so that's an important thing to understand is it's not just about infections. Mm -hmm. And so the truth is doctors are trained to focus on body parts. If you want to be a gastroenterologist, you specialize in the gut. If you want to be a psychiatrist, if you are interested in the brain, you focus on psychiatry or neurology. Mm -hmm. If you're interested in the heart, you focus on cardiology. But the truth is a person doesn't have diabetes. They don't have heart disease. They don't have uh, even bipolar disorder in a lot of ways. What they really have is chronic inflammation that's in their body that leaves them more susceptible to then having a breakdown in one of these body parts. And so what we need is to help people begin reversing the chronic inflammation in your body so you're less susceptible to having these illnesses. Yes. So, so that's, that's a really big topic. The, and, and so in, we're going to be talking about stress here as we begin to turn towards looking at changing our relationship with stress. It's not just nutrition that helps calm down or reverse the inflammation in our bodies. It's also our relationship with stress. What we know on the basis of both lab research and clinical research is that the body and the immune system, all these brilliant cell subtypes in the immune system, they love being bathed in the neurochemicals of dopamine, the pleasure pathway, mm-hmm. oxytocin, the love molecule, mm-hmm. uh, serotonin, the antidepressant molecule, those kinds of molecules bathing the immune system, make the immune system happy. They make it function efficiently. They make it function properly. But if the body is in chronic fight, flight, or freeze, it's going to be secreting a very different set of chemicals onto the immune system. And things like adrenaline and stress hormones like cortisol, norepinephrine, they cause the immune system to begin to misfire, to make mistakes, to begin to attack the body instead of the pathogen, for example. And that's how you end up with an autoimmune illness, which is the body attacking itself. Yes. And that was one of the things that I love that for the first time really made sense to me because I know things like cortisol and those stress hormones, as well Mm -hmm. as sugar, for example, are all tied to inflammation in the body. 
but yes. I didn't know how. And the way that you explained it, let's take sugar, for example, since we were just talking about diet a moment ago, that right. the actual sugar molecule, as it goes through your bloodstream, because of the way it's shaped with sharp edges, it's right. actually like nicking the insides of yeah. your blood vessels. I mean, this is my layperson paraphrasing <laughs> what you say yeah. in the book. It's <laughs> great. Yeah, that's absolutely true. So the average person over 100 years ago consumed four pounds of sugar a year, no big deal. Yeah. The average American now consumes 154 pounds of sugar a year. Your body can't keep up with that kind of load. And you're right. What happens is these sharp granules go coursing through your bloodstream. They go bouncing off the walls of your arteries, causing these little cuts over and over again. The brilliant immune system comes in to repair those cuts and you end up repairing scar on top of scar on top of scar. And then we call that atherosclerosis. Mm. So yeah. that's what creates inflammation. That is chronic inflammation in your body. And sugar is a huge contributor to that. Yes. So I'm not against all sugar, but the load is not something that our body's made for. I'd read a, a study recently that in Ireland, you know, just had <laughs> yesterday was St. Patrick's Day. Mm -hmm. Ireland's Supreme Court recently ruled that Subway, the uh, fast food um, mm -hmm. Subway, they can no longer have their bread taxed as bread because the sugar content is so high that it's not, you can't call it bread any longer. And that's in spite of the fact that refined flour is basically sugar. But they're saying on top of that, the sugar content is so high that you can't tax this as bread any longer. That's sugar is in everything. I went to Whole Foods recently to buy salmon burgers. I ended up not buying them because there's sugar in them. Yeah. There's sugar in tomato sauces. There's, you know, and we have to become more aware of how much sugar is ubiquitous in our lives, unfortunately, and we can change that. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, so I know, and you were talking about the stress response. I'm sorry, I kind of pulled us back to diet there with the sugar and inflammation. It's not a problem. <laughs> um, it's a big topic. Yeah, absolutely. And it really helped to have that, that visual in my head of what it's doing inside the capillaries. It's just wild. Um, yeah. Yeah, so um, let's see. With, with regard to stress, I know we, you really um, provide a lot of great explanation about um, the importance of recognizing stress as it relates to healing. But just for people that are out there listening, how do you advise patients or clients on triggering the rest and digest, the, the opposite of fight or flight? Like how can we yeah. keep the, the, the parasympathetic engaged so that we are not constantly in fight or flight creating that chronic inflammation? Yeah. Right. It's an important question. And I'm sorry to say that a lot of us, myself included, spend more time in fight or flight than is healthy for us. Mm -hmm. The truth is there's a lot of trauma out there. A lot of people who uh, have been raised in environments that were very stressful and caused from a young age, the fight or flight or freeze response to be activated. And so finding a path flight or freeze into a more healing parasympathetic state is not only about learning to relax and get back in your body in a way that your body can feel can we need to have experiences where we feel loved and able to take care of our bodies mm -hmm. to give the kind of self-care that our minds and our bodies need to really pay attention to even self-stewardship mm -hmm. to knowing how to say no to the things that are too stressful in our lives or to change our relationship with uh, things that are stressful, but we can't necessarily eliminate. Running a marathon 
might be stressful, but if it helps you experience what's right and great about you and helps you reach into your higher self, then that's a positive stress. And that's a very different thing from a toxic stress. A toxic stress may occur if you finish work every day, depleted, run down and questioning your value, or if you're in an abusive relationship that where you're constantly being told that you don't matter or that there's something wrong or defective about you, that's a toxic kind of stress. Mm -hmm. And in that kind of situation, you need to either change your environment or you need to change your relationship with the environment. And that takes a lot of work. It's that's not, these are, it's, it's, it takes a lot of work to identify and then change these issues in our lives. Yes. And I think this is a great time to share one of my favorite stories from the book, which I didn't even know I'd, I'd, you know, I'd hear, of course I interviewed Kelly Turner, radical remission. So I'm aware of some of the stories out there, but I didn't know that in stage lupus was one that anyone had ever come back from. And you Mm. profile a woman named Jan. And I think my takeaway Mm. from her story was the thing that really made the difference in her healing was the, uh, what you call shedding her skin, basically shedding the stressors. Uh, She had some, well, I'll let you share what, what is relevant there, but what an inspiring story. She was an organ shutdown when she arrived in Brazil at a healing center. And then now it's right. Yeah. 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 She had lupus. Lupus can be a terrible illness that burdens a life terribly. It can also have a more severe form that is life ending. And at the time of uh, her interaction with this healing center, she was uh, going into organ shutdown. Lupus was in her kidneys. It was in her heart. It was in her brain, in her liver. And her doctor believed that she was going to be dead within the next few weeks, most likely. And she'd been ill for decades at that point. And she showed me pictures of who she was in her younger years. And she had this amazing experience where she got so much better and was, and so I can tell you more of the story around that. If you want, it's an amazing story. And then goes to Idaho and is so much better that people don't even recognize her walking down the street. She doesn't even look like the same person. And then she becomes ill again and begins to realize that there's the way she interacts with her husband at the time and her job, there's something toxic about those interactions mm-hmm. that's very related to her illness. And so it goes back to the healing center, gets better again, realizes that she's going to have to make some big changes in her life. And she did. And then now for the last more than 20 years has just flourished and had a very different life, but my, the changes she had to make and the deep parting the curtains kind of realizations she had to have about her value and about the need to set boundaries around who can be in her life and who cannot be in her life and how she interacts with that massive life lessons. Yes. And I think if I remember correctly, she was the one who had three children um, yeah. And and these the the children were in various stages of of addiction or substance abuse and some other toxic things going on in the lives, and mm-hmm. and she had to let them go. In a, in yes. a I, I'm I'm not saying she for her own self protection, preservation, and healing. Yes. She had to draw a boundary around the children, which I think I'm saying this for listeners out there, because I know that's a a big area for people. How do you release a child to God, basically, and not try to participate anymore? That was part of it for her, too. 
Yeah. Yeah. That's very true. And it's well said. She was helped by this healer to realize that she had been spending way too much of her life energy trying to rescue children that she deeply cared about, feeling guilty, feeling not good enough as a mother, not knowing how to say no in a way that she could also pay attention to her life and well-being. She, in the early stages of her recovery, needed some help paying attention to her own authentic needs as a woman and as a human being and as a mother so she could begin recovering a sense of herself and remember who she really was and begin developing a path where she also paid attention to her own needs. She had to realize that she needed to say no and not just be taking care of everyone else instead of also paying attention to her own needs. Right. And as my friend Gabriel Monte says, if you don't know how to say no, your body will eventually say no for you. Ooh. And that is such a huge lesson. And I'm telling you, our medical hospitals, our clinics, and our psychiatric hospitals are full of people who don't realize where they need to say no so they can begin paying attention to their own life and well-being and feel comfortable taking up space in the world, realizing that they matter, setting up what I call a selfish bitch project, because it can feel selfish initially to pay attention to your own authentic needs, but it's not. That's But people are socialized to think that it's selfish to pay attention to your own needs. Yes. So this also feeds into um, the that, that fourth pillar of healing our identities. And one of the things yeah. that I also found so interesting is Part of what got you going down this pathway was that conversation with Nikki, the oncology nurse who had been diagnosed yeah. um, and, and had gone down there to experience some healing. And so you started looking at these hot spots, like Brazil being one of them, where there were these yeah. centers where people were going. And I love that what you took away was, or at least this is my takeaway from what you say in the book, that that it wasn't the healer doing something to them. It was the environment and the healer awakening something that was within the person so yes. that they could participate and, and catalyze the healing. That's right. Yeah. And so that kind of feeds into this yeah. healing our identity. So can you speak to that a little bit? Yeah. And this is the biggest part of what I feel is so important. Every person that I've talked to in the past 19 years in the context of them describing their healing to me, mm -hmm. this is where they wake up their eyes light up and they want to really talk about why they are so grateful in retrospect for this illness, which has been so scary and difficult for them yeah. because what it gave them was at the deepest level, a new experience of who they are and help them realize they're not alone, that they bring something really unrepeatable and of infinite value into the world. And there's nothing about them that's defective or not good enough. Right. And that's such a deep thing. We all grow up, we inherit beliefs from our parents. Some of them are true. Some of them are false. Some of these beliefs are conscious. Some of them are unconscious. We pick up true and false beliefs from kids on the playground, from the ways we interpret the different traumas that we endure or experience. We pick up true and false beliefs from uh, teachers, from partners, from friends, um, bosses. Mm -hmm. And the truth is, if we, as we all do, have a complex combination of true and false beliefs, we will have mixed results in our minds and our bodies and our lives. And these individuals healed some of those false beliefs in a way that's liberated something 
in them at a deep level. Yes, and it and it changed. And I just want to be very clear here: you've got uh, you've got the studies cited here um, in the mm-hmm. notes throughout the book that these beliefs and emotions that go along with them change yep. our physiology. They they do. Yeah, and that's a huge component of this that I think now we're just mainstream medicine is just beginning to get into yes. what some spiritual traditions have known for eons. But that's absolutely true. Yeah. Um, yeah, and so I, I think the place where I the one of the stories that 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 epitomized this the most I, most I was fascinated by this is this you know um, the the set of identical twins who had cerebral palsy. Yes. Yeah, and right. and so if you're looking at it just from a genetic standpoint, genetics are ninety nine percent the same. Right. And you've yes. got one of the twins who took up meditation, changed her nutrition, refused right. to accept what was told would be her life. Right. And then what about the other twin? That was the one that I was like, oh, my gosh, that's wild. She didn't feel she was worth it. She felt she was too defective to do the same things that her sister had done. And I've seen other sets of identical twins. And over a period of even just a few years, one's life can take you down a path that is so different that you won't even look like the twin any longer. I mean, it's so astonishing how this goes. I had a, a similar situation here at McLean where uh, this person had been struggling just with awful bipolar disorder and substance abuse, history of abuse as a child. And then we had a meeting with uh, her sister, who was an identical twin, who who didn't even look like a sister anymore, had such a different life because at age 28, she decided she was going to start meditating and taking her psychotherapy seriously and to heal some of these false beliefs. And so she started paying attention to her nutrition and her self-care. And it took her two years of real struggle, but she was then able to get off the medications, wasn't diagnosed with bipolar disorder anymore. She never had bipolar disorder, but it had been given the wrong diagnosis, she really had PTSD and substance abuse mood disorder, but ended up with a great career, great relationships. And then as that family session proceeded, and she just said to her sister about this is what this path really works. And then I was notified a few years later, and her twin sister did follow that same path and ended up having a very different trajectory healing as well. So these things really matter. Yeah, and I'm sorry. I think I mixed the cerebral palsy twins and the the bipolar or misdiagnosis. Yeah, no, but that's yeah. a, that's a, that's yeah. also the same story. That's you're right. The way you told that story is absolutely true. Mm-hmm. Identical twins, cerebral palsy, and one sister felt that she's worth it enough to make these changes, and the other didn't feel she felt she was too defective. She said, and and so she lived with the heavy burden of of this illness in a way that was just, oh, the, the emotion I remember is, I'll never forget what it was like feeling the burden of what she was living with. Mm. So that just underscores the importance of the healing, the identity part. Yeah. You can't even allow in the healing. Yeah. Yeah. My publisher said that he believes in cured because 40 books were, he said, would be written the year when uh, my book came out, the beginning of the pandemic two years ago. Mm -hmm. But he said that no one else has said that if you want to heal at the deepest level, you need to heal your identity. Mm -hmm. You're right. Spirituality, the best of spirituality has known this for a long time, but it's not something we've known in medicine. Right. 
Yeah, and there was one, I, I know I, there was something that I want to return to that you said earlier on in the book um, that I want to make sure we had some time for because I thought this was just um, provides so much hope. But you'd said that over the past century, reports of spontaneous remission have increased in both number and frequency. And this was the kicker for me, typically with a spike after significant conferences books like yours uh, and major media stories. Um, And so can you, I know you included the story of Roger Bannister. At one point in history, physicians didn't even think it was possible that a human could run under a four minute mile. When he did, it opened the floodgates and everyone, not everyone, there were many, many more who have been recorded. So can you speak to this, that that the increase in in spontaneous remissions and that being tied to folks hearing about it? Yeah. Yeah. It's a complicated topic, right? Because what we often assume are physiological barriers are actually psychological barriers. Mm -hmm. And so it's absolutely true that once the four minute mile was broken, lots of others quickly broke the four minute mile too. So there's some kind of psychological barrier though that was broken. And you can find this all over the place. Mm -hmm. It's been said and reported in scientific studies for decades that, that spontaneous remission is rare. Um, that it only occurs in about one in 100,000 cases. Well, I went back to try to figure out how that statistic was created. Someone just made it up. I forget who the person's name. They made it up decades ago, and that got reported in the scientific literature as fact for decades, quoted over and over again. It was just made up. It wasn't rooted in anything true. What's true is most of the time, doctors are too concerned about their reputation, so they don't report it. Mm-hmm. Um it's not given it, the word spontaneous in this context means without cause. Mm-hmm. So that the assumption that you're taught in medical school is that these are flukes with no medical or scientific value. If you just assume they have no cause, well, that's a very unscientific way of thinking. Mm-hmm. Everything has a cause. We just weren't asking the questions. And so it's taught as being rare but I've never given a talk where someone did not come up to me after the talk and say, you need to talk to this patient, or you need to talk to my aunt, or you need to talk to my mother who have had spontaneous remissions. And so it's much more common than people realize. We just don't have a way to let people tell their stories in a way that makes sense. Well, until your research and Kelly Turner's research, right. and yeah, these <laughs> totally. projects where people are now being these uh, the places where people can come together to share right. these and put together because this is what you've been doing for almost 20 years is right. is looking at these cases pulling them together and saying no these are not just one off flukes look at all this evidence right um yep. yeah it, there's another part of the book at the very end which i just uh, this was so cool you contrasted well not contrasted you took us back to greece in like 300 right. uh, bc and then you flashed forward to 2049 can you right. speak a little bit about like where we've been and where you see the potential for us going? Because I didn't even realize. Anyway, just the way that you described that gave me so much hope for what is possible yeah. for us. Yeah. So we are leaving the era of disease and medications and are in the early stages opening up a new and exciting era of health and well-being. Mm-hmm. Ten years ago, you could still, as an academic, have your career threatened by studying health and well-being. It's wild that as a physician, I was not taught 
to even ask questions or think about how to help people heal. We don't study how people heal historically in medicine. We, I was taught as a med, as a physician to make a diagnosis and start a medication. And that's the era that we've been in. And now we are at the end of that era. I think it was great when early scientists took illness from the church and said, you can no longer blame a person for being ill or say it's a judgment from God or a reflection of sin in their lives. That was a step forward and allowed the early scientists to create a taxonomy of Mm -hmm. illness to begin identifying and naming diseases. But that's a very different set of questions than what heals a disease. Mm -hmm. So now that we are finally just starting to ask, what does it mean to heal an illness? What does it mean to create well-being? That's a very different set of questions that we now are beginning to answer and ask and research and bring into the clinic. And that's going to create a very different way of interacting around diseases and with doctors. And another piece of this is, it's a deep topic, but Cartesian and Newtonian science create this chasm between mind and body that says these two worlds don't interact. And that it was a brilliant uh, effort by Descartes to say, listen, we need to be able to investigate the physical body, but the church won't let us do that. They won't let us do autopsies. They won't let us um, investigate the body. And so let's give the mind to the church and they can have their beliefs and let us have the body. And so that allowed the early scientists to begin doing their thing and investigating and creating science. But it created this world where the two things don't interact at all. And yet we know in our lived lives, how we feel about ourselves in the world has a lot to do with what goes on in the body and what goes on in the body has a lot to do with what goes on in our minds and spirits. And so they're all interacted. Ernest Becker said, we are irreducibly of two natures. We are spirits and we are bodies. We are physical and biological beings, and we are also spiritual beings. And those are both deeply connected. And we need to stand back from the different specialists that we see, whether it's a priest or a imam or a minister or a shaman and, uh, or a physician and see how these other aspects of our being interact. Because the people I study, they put their mind, body, and spirit together in a new way and took their life to a completely different level. And so that, but they stepped back and looked at the bigger picture and that's what we need to help people do. Not just see the specialist and then not stand back and see the larger picture. If that makes sense. Absolutely. And I know I was looking for this one final thing, because I know we're right at the end of the hour, but when when we turn toward this new model of healing and health and the four pillars that you have, that you have identified, um, then we have the potential for doctors not just to be repositories of information where you've memorized, but actually artists of healing, like that can That's right. follow intuition and look at the whole person. And that just gives me so much hope. Yep. That is where things are going. People more and more will be able to be the CEOs of their own health. Mm-hmm. This is the democratization of health and human rights, where people will have the tools and the data in their sensors in the environment, sensors on their body, apps on their smartphone to begin taking charge of their health. And the doctor will be a coach Mm -hmm. and will help facilitate health and well-being rather than being the expert on your life and your body, even though they spend just five or 10 minutes with you. Yes. Uh, Well, that I wish we could continue on, but um, this has been such a wonderful hour. I have been joined today by Dr. Jeffrey Rediger. um, That's R-E-D-I-G-E-R. 
Website is drjeffreyrediger.com, and the book is Cured. Thank you so much for joining us today, Dr. Rediger. Thank you. Really a pleasure. <laughs> Absolutely. My pleasure. Uh, you've been listening to Sunny in Seattle. I am your host, Sunny Joy, signing off. See you next week. <laughs>